Hey, y'all, if that reckless love, if that song doesn't get you fired up, you know what the truth in that song is? He will chase you in the parking lot. He will chase you up a tree. He will chase you up, the words say, he will chase you up a mountain because he loves you. There is, there, y'all ought to clap for that. I mean, that is the, the most unbelievable truth about, about God. That is the most unbelievable truth about Jesus. He will hunt you down. And today, we're, you know, we're going to sort of touch on who it is that's doing that. Um, we're in the week six or seven of this, this series called uh, What Every Christian Ought to Know. And today, we're going to try to answer the question, who is Jesus? And this, this topic, I guess, is that every Christian ought to know about the person of Jesus Christ. And y'all, I was 36 years old when I came face to face with that question. You do know that everybody on the planet, at some point or the other, they're going to have to answer that question. Um, and, and a no answer is a no answer. You get that? No answer is a no answer. For me, I had never even considered, uh, uh, for at least the first 36 years of my life, I never even considered it. You know, growing up Jewish, it was not an issue. It was not, it wasn't discussed. And it wasn't like I was taught that he was not the Messiah. I just wasn't taught anything. It just was just a non-issue. I never even considered anything about him. Now, admittedly, um, he really is the central figure in all of human history. There's never been anybody like him. The claims that he made as well as the claims that other people made about him, and he did make some claims himself, but all of those claims really really drove him into endless controversies and created endless controversies over history. Pontius Pilate in Matthew 27, he phrased this question so, so perfectly. He asked, then what shall I do with Jesus who you, uh, who you call the Christ? What do I do with him? That's the question that all of us have to answer at some point. Who, what, do I do, what do I do with him? What do I do with the claims? But really before, um, before we can answer that question, what am I going to do with Jesus? We, we really have to understand who he is. And I'm going to try to paint a picture today and we got to understand, and this, this, this issue that we got to discuss is the incarnation. Y'all say that together with me, incarnation. We're going to have some, hopefully not too many, but we're going to have some little bit of theology today. Um, the incarnation is the term that we use to describe the event of God becoming a man in the birth of Jesus. The incarnation is Christmas, not the sale at Bed Bath and Beyond. The incarnation is Christmas. The early church argued vehemently over who Christ was. And they were trying to get it right. Is he God? Is he man? Is he part God? Is he is he part man? You know, who is he? And how does all that kind of work together? This is one of the very greatest mysteries about the greatest figure of history, and it has befuddled, unbelievably befuddled theologians for 2,000 years. For me personally, it's another Leonardo da Vinci moment like we talked about last week. And if y'all remember what I said last week when Leonardo da Vinci was painting The Last Supper, he struggled not with anything else in that image. He struggled with the awesome task and responsibility 
of painting the face of Christ. He procrastinated and procrastinated and felt unworthy and felt inadequate. And I'm telling you all, I've got to paint a picture of who Jesus is for you today over the next 30 or 35 minutes. And I feel unbelievably in that. In matter of fact, I want to pray. Y'all close your eyes. Lord, Lord, you know that I struggled all week long with, with, with the idea of having to paint a picture of you, who you are for the people who are going to be sitting in these seats today. And Lord, I pray that you would really um, speak your words through me, that you would remove the weakness. Lord, that you would be made strong in my weakness. And you know that I really do feel inadequate about doing this. And so, Lord, I, I trust and I believe that you're going to speak, that there are people here that need, need to hear your words. They need to see an, as accurate an image of who you are as can be painted with human words. And so, Lord, I ask you to do that over the next 30 or 35 minutes in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what I want to do. I want to dive in, and I want to ask the question, who is he? Who is Jesus? And I want us to look first in the book of John, the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Go about to the middle and then go four books over. We're going to look at the very beginning of it in John 1.1, and then we're going to look at verse 14 as well. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 it says, And the Word, the one he was talking about at the beginning, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. He hung out with us. They walked the highways and the byways. They, that Word is tabernacled. He tabernacled with us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so first, first, I'm going to give you three points today, three little bullets. Uh, I think it's three. Usually I'm good for about seven or eight. Today there's going to be three. Um, and the first one is that He is the Word of God. He is the Word of God. What does that mean for Jesus to be God, to be the Word of God? And I want you to see what John is telling us about the fact that Jesus is God. First of all, number one, is the man that we need to see. He is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, what is all that about? What is all this Word talk about? Who is the Word that John's talking about? Verse 14 says that the Word became flesh, and that flesh walked among us. And who is that? We know that that's referring to Jesus. But why is John calling Jesus the Word? That seems like a 21st century kind of hip, cool, he's the Word. Kind of that kind of language. Of all the names to introduce Jesus, why does John use, and why does he refer to him as the Word? Why would he say that? Think about this. In the beginning, he starts off in John 1.1. 1, 1. Does that phrase remind you of anything? Of course it does. It's on page 1 of your Bible. Page 1, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning. In the beginning who? In the beginning God. Before anything else was God. In the beginning, the Word. In the beginning, God was there. And in the beginning, the Word was there. So then we've got the Word being equated with God. We see from the very beginning, and God said, let there be light. And what was there? Light. 
God said, let there be light, and creation happened. And it happened according to what? It happened according to his word. He spoke it into existence. All of creation, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, over and over again we see the word of God mentioned. God spoke and it came to be. God's power, God's might in creation is revealed through what? It's revealed through his word. So God reveals himself through his word. Over and over and over in the Old Testament, the word is the picture of the way that God reveals himself. It's how he reveals his power. And it literally means his self-expression, his self-revelation. I want you to think about that for a second. The word of God is his revelation, his self-expression. So as we begin to think about the identity of Christ, what unfolds in the beginning of the Gospel of John is the fact that he is the word. He is the self-expression of who? Of God. He's the revelation of God. He's revealed. He's God revealed in the flesh, in a man. The Word was with God. So obviously he had a relationship with God. He was with Him. And the Word was God. And so Jesus was God. So Jesus had a relationship with God and He was God. How do you figure that out? That is the whole mystery of the Trinity. And what we're going to see is that we see Jesus and the Father in cooperation, in relationship with each other, and at the same time, in essence, one person being in very nature God. Now let's look at, uh, at a question that we definitely know that we can answer. And I want you to think about something with me. This is powerful because if we can answer this question... It's going to help us along the way of getting our, sort of getting our arms around the fact that he is God. And the question that I think we need to answer is, did he ever say that he was God? Did Jesus ever say that he was God? And what I want to show you is if we can answer that, then I think it will give us a whole, probably a whole new understanding of what it means for him to be God. Did he ever say that he was God? And I tell you all what, i got a hundred bucks I got a hundred bucks. I don't have a hundred bucks. I got a buck. I got a buck that if anybody can find me in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where Jesus said these words, I am God. And I know my buck is safe because I know there is nowhere in the Gospels where Jesus said the words, I am God. And you will hear that. You will hear folks tell you that. I heard it from my family left and right. How can you believe that? How can you be- He himself never claimed to be God. So how, do you, how can you even believe that? That's what they said to me. And so here's the deal. And did he use the words, I am God? He did not. In context, throughout the New Testament, in context, he claimed to be God, even though he never used those words, I am God. And I want to show you just a few, eight or nine places where he said this. Put them in a bucket and you tell me what his claim is. And these are eight or nine out of 50 or 60 times that he said things like this. John 10, 36, beginning in 36. He says, I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that what? The Father is in me and I am in the Father. 
the Father and the Son were just put on equal on, a, on an equal playing field. Understand that the Father is me is in me, and I am in the Father. In Matthew 28, what an cr- unbelievable claim he makes in Matthew 28. He says, "All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me." Did he say some authority? No. Did he say a little bit of authority? No. He said, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me." Go, therefore. And which, by the way, is the great commission, not the great suggestion. Go. He tells us to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the who? Of the Son. He just told us in John 10, I am the Son of God, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. What a promise that is. I am with you always till when? Till the end of the age. You go do what I say to do, and I will be with you forever in eternity. A man doesn't say that. Somebody who's just a man, they don't say that. John 6 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And John 8:12 says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I'm the light of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. And in John 8:23. He says to the people he's talking to, you are from below, but I am from above. You are of this world, but I am not of this world. Who says that stuff? Crazy people, maybe. So you you may could believe that he's crazy, but all the evidence in his life says he's not crazy. You may say that he's a liar, but all the evidence in his life says he's not a liar. All the evidence says he is what? He's God. Here's another one. He says, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you, you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And in John 10, he says, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Now he's claiming to save people. He's claiming that he's the door. And if, they, if you enter by me, you'll be saved. In John 11, he says, I'm the resurrection and the light. Whoever believes in me, though he die physically... Yet shall he live spiritually. That's what he's saying. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's claiming that if you believe in me, you will live for eternity. God holds that trump card. Y'all get that? So there's a claim there. And in John uh, 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It doesn't say some people. It says no one except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. There's another claim of being on equal terms with the Father. And the trump, the coup de grace is in in John 8, 58. He says, truly I say to you, and remember he's speaking, these people are Jewish that he's speaking to. Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. These are all clear claims if taken in context, but that last one, oh my goodness, that one is so clear and it harkens back to Moses on the mountain, on Mount Horeb, talking to God and God is revealing himself in the burning bush and Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel, and this is in Exodus 3, I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me what's his name He says, God, what am I supposed to tell him? And God said back to Moses, I am who I am. 
And God further said to him, he said, Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Do you think the Jews knew the Exodus story? Do you think the Jews at that time uh, knew about being freed from slavery in Egypt? Do you think the Jews today know about that? Are you kidding me? It is the biggest. God says throughout the Old Testament, throughout it, He says, remember me, I'm the one that got you out of Egypt. I don't know how many times. I wish I could tell you I remember every word in the Bible. I don't. Fifty times He says that in the Old Testament. Remember me, I am the one who got you out of slavery. So they knew. The people that heard this, the people that are hearing Jesus, they knew. Why do you think they tried to jump Him? They tried to jump Him and stone Him because He just spoke in their minds total blasphemy. And they couldn't tolerate it. What was the blasphemy that He spoke? That He claimed to be God. That He claimed to forgive sins. He said, I forgive sins. And they ripped their clothes and said, only God can, can forgive sins. That's the point. They didn't miss the claims. It's exactly why they flipped a gasket. And so over and over in the Gospels, we see him claiming to be God without saying the words, I am God. So he's the word, number one. And number two, he is the creator, yet he becomes a slave of his creation. We're going to find this second truth in Philippians 2, 6, and 7, one of the most powerful two verses in all of the Scripture. It says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So he is the creator, yet he becomes a slave to his creation. The sovereign creator God a slave to his own creation. Put that together here. And some translations in verse 7 um, say he made himself nothing. He humiliated himself. He emptied himself. Now be careful because sometimes when, when people read that Jesus emptied himself, they picture him as he became a man. They picture him removing his godness. I know godness is not a word, but that's an Ed word. That he removes that from himself. That he took it off somehow or the other. But we know that's not true because we just talked about him being fully God. That he is the word. He is in very nature God. It means his essence is literally God. He exists as God. You can't just take off who you are. You, you, can't, you can't do that. We know that God is immutable. That's unchangeable. You can't just take that off. So he didn't empty himself by taking, by removing some of his godness. Instead, he emptied himself by taking on something else onto himself. By taking on the very nature of a servant. Circle that in your worship guide. Circle that word form in verse 6 and 7. It says, in the original language, that word is morphe. Morphe is form or, or substance or nature. So he is, in his very nature, God. In verse 7 it says he took on the form or the nature of a servant. And so here's what you see. You see Jesus had two natures, the nature of God and the nature of a servant. Not in contradiction, not in conflict with each other. So when you picture Jesus coming to earth as a man, being born a man, 
instead of picturing in your mind God minus something, you need to picture in your mind God plus something. It's God taking on human likeness, being made in human likeness. Jesus is one person, according to Philippians 2, 6, and 7. One person with two natures. And I'm not saying this is easy to get our arms around. I promise you I'm not. One person with two natures. A human nature and a God nature. A servant nature and a divine nature. And you just have to know that the greatest theological minds ever struggle with this. In the first 500 years of the church, people getting excommunicated and thrown out of the church and and fighting and fussing about the nature of Christ, who He is. Is He 50-50? Is He 60-40? Is He 40-60? What are the consequences of that? Why is it inaccurate to say that He is part God and part man? And I struggle if He's 100%, fully God, fully man, and He's on His knees praying, He's praying to Himself. How does all that work? It'll give you a migraine. If you think about it too long, I've had a migraine all week. I'm, trust me. What I, and when I struggle, this is the, my personal little way of doing it, when I, when I struggle with something that I'm not really sure how to believe or what to believe, I, go, I, I take myself back in that issue, back to where I can find something that I absolutely know that I believe 100%. And so this week, as I'm thinking through this, this guy that says he's the Son of God, that he's the bread of life, that he's the light of life, that he's the light of the world. This guy that said, the Father, if you, if you had known me, you'd know my Father. If you know my Father, you know me. I am in him and he is in me. That guy I know is fully God. Zero doubt he is fully God. Colossians 2.9, Paul wrote, the fullness of deity dwells in him. The fullness of deity dwells in him. The fullness of, the, of God dwells in him. And so we know that it never stops when the text says that he emptied himself. That was not him becoming less God. That was not him removing the God from himself. Because Paul said, the fullness of the deity dwells in him. He's not part God and part man. He is fully God. And now there's a second aspect, second facet of this And that is, as the Son of Man, that's another name for Him in the Scriptures, that He's fully human. Not not kind of like us. Not a little bit like us. Everything that makes me and you human, skin and flesh and bones and blood and, 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 and toes and fingers and hair, some of us have, and ears and whatever those things are. He was a physical human being. Physical. Ancient heresies, Gnosticism, if you've ever heard that term, Gnosticism said that matter is evil. So there's no way that Jesus was real flesh. He was a ghost or something. It's heresy. It was heresy. He had flesh like you have flesh. He had eyes like you have eyes. Fingers and toes and, and bones and blood. As a baby, he cried. As an adult, he wept. He got hungry. He got tired. He got angry. Oh my gosh, Jesus got angry. He did get angry. Flip some tables over if you read the Bible. We know that he grew in knowledge. 
It's crazy to think that the creator of the universe had to learn to crawl. And he had to learn to walk. Just like we did. Luke 2.52 says that he grew in wisdom and stature. He experienced the same emotions exactly like we do. Sorrow and grief and happiness and, and joy. Every single thing that we do. He did. Every single feeling you could ever have, he had that feeling. So you get this, this fully human picture, not just partly like us. And now that's what's described in the text in Philippians 2 when he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so there's this image, and we see it, those two elements of the person of Christ right side by side in the Gospels. You think about that. Even when it was prophesied 800 years earlier, and it was said that the virgin would give birth to what? A son. There's his humanity. And you will call him, his name, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And there's his deity. Humanity and deity wrapped up together in the person of Christ. Paul in Philippians 2, he's trying to communicate to us that Jesus reveals God completely. He reveals God com- completely by taking on the form of a servant, a bond servant. There's humiliation in that. He's a slave. That's what that word means. And the readers in Philippi, who this letter was written to, they knew what a slave was. They knew what a bond servant was. They knew a servant gave up their rights. They gave up their pride and all things along those lines. And he became a servant of his creation. He who had all the glory and all the power and all the praise and all the, and all the might, he took on the nature of a servant to serve his people. What does Mark 10.45 says, say? The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. Y'all, that is the most beautiful, incredible truth for me and you, that he came to serve. He perfectly reveals humanity and deity. And that's one of the most, if it's not the most amazing miracles in history. There would be no resurrection if there were no cross. And there would be no cross if there were no incarnation. What a crazy, huge truth that the creator of the universe would make himself nothing. He would humiliate himself. He would empty himself and take on the nature of a slave to serve the creation that he created. That is unbelievable. The third truth, number one, that he's the word of God. Number two, that as a creator, he still uh, became a slave of his creation. And number three is this, that he is perfect, and yet he pays the price for our sin. Now, I'm getting a little bit outside of who he is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. And now I'm getting a little bit into the why behind that. Why did God become a man? Why is it so important? And it's important right here for the very meaning of salvation. For the very meaning of our salvation. If this truth, Jesus fully God, Jesus fully man, if that's not there, then we have no reason to even be here. There's absolutely no reason to be here. There is no salvation. There is no Christianity without the incarnation. And I want you to see that on two levels. The first level is as a human. As a human, 
He alone can substitute for human sin. The book of Ruth, one of the most beautiful pictures of redemption in all of the Bible. It's a perfect image of what I'm talking about. And redemption is the theme in the book of Ruth. And a redeemer in Ruth and a redeemer in the Old Testament, what does redemption mean? It means to purchase back. And so a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer is the language the Old Testament uses, was one who pays the price to bring someone into his family. And in Ruth, in the book of Ruth, his name is Boaz. Boaz, and there were three requirements, scriptural requirements, in order to be a redeemer. Number one, to be a redeemer, you had to have the resolve to redeem. You had to want to redeem. You had to desire to redeem. You had to yearn to redeem. Number one and number two, you had to have the resources to redeem. You had to have the ability to redeem. You had to have something inside of you or something external to you that would allow you the resource to redeem. And number three, you had to have the right to redeem. You had to have the right. By being a next of kin, by being, by being the same as those that you're redeeming. It was kind of a situation where Boaz may not be able to redeem Ruth if there was somebody that was closer to her than he was. And it's like in the Old Testament, a redeemer has to be like those that he redeems. And that's a little bit of the picture that we see here. Because all of us have sin that separates us from God and creates this, this rift. And we saw last week that God's holiness and God's justice is set against sin and that it's got to be punished. And how can we ever have somebody that takes on that punishment or is a substitute for us if God's wrath is being poured out on humanity because of sin? It would have to be somebody, someone from humanity who could be a substitute for human sin. And so we've got on this first level that as a man, he alone can substitute for human sin. He was fully man. But second, as God, he alone can satisfy divine wrath. Put those two together. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And you're going to see Paul talking to Timothy, and he's describing Jesus here. He's describing Jesus to Timothy in the context of God's desire God's want to, to bridge the chasm between him and man. It says in verse 3 and 4, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who what desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom. He had the ability gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, you see Paul here is emphasizing the humanity of Christ, the man Christ Jesus. And God is ordained in his desire to bring all men to himself. In that ordination of that desire, that there'd be one mediator between God and between man to bridge the gap, and that would be the man Christ Jesus. Now, just like you and I would have somebody to mediate or reconcile two parties today in order to be a mediator, and I spent 15 years in real estate, and you have a buyer and a seller, 
And if they got a rift, you think buyers and sellers ever have a rift between them? You get a mediator to mediate. And that mediator, in order to reconcile those two parties, he would have to be familiar with both parties. He would have to know the buyer and what they're like. And he'd have to know the seller and what the seller is like. He'd have to be familiar with both those parties. And he'd, be a go, he'd have to be a go-between. He'd have to know this side and know that side to be able to bridge the gap between them. And if they only knew one side of the story, then there was no way that they would be a good reconciler between the two sides. They'd have to be in the middle, a mediator, that, and that's fully God and fully human. And Jesus in the incarnation is that mediator. So he is able to be a human substitute, the man Christ Jesus. Oh my gosh, look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like them. Who is them? It's me and you. Fully human in every way. In some ways, if the scripture says every, it means every. In every way, he is us. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Made like. It's the same word that's used in Philippians 2.7 when he says in the likeness of men. It's the same word. He is like us. Able to be a mediator so that he can do what? So that he can make atonement. That's a big word for our sins. The word atonement literally means propitiation. That's a bigger word. But all it means is to appease God. To satisfy God. To regain favor with God. It's part of that redemption. God needs to be appeased. And Scripture is telling us here that He alone can do that. He alone can satisfy or appease God. And so what we see in the incarnation in, in the picture, this picture of atonement is the fact that there is not, y'all hear this, there is not one of us, not one of us in all of history who could stand before God and bear the brunt of that punishment upon ourselves for all men. There's not one human that could do that, that is just a human. However, if God Himself in His divinity, God in His flesh, in His humanity, were to take that wrath upon Himself, then He alone could satisfy that judgment. Here's the deal. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, salvation is impossible. But by the grace of God, it is possible. You see how the incarnation is a picture of the gospel. Humanity and deity come crashing together in the person of Christ. Humanity and deity are wed together in the picture of the cross. We have a relationship with God. We can relate to Him. We walk with Him. We, we enjoy Him. We, we know Him. We, 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 we know Him. And I mean know the way Peter said no inside. It's not having knowledge. It's having intimate knowledge. In, it's, it's not just head stuff. It's heart stuff. That's the why that I spoke about a minute ago. That's why the incarnation, y'all, is so important. And the bottom line truth is that the incarnation is a wonderful mystery. And I hope that I have done it some sort of justice. I fear that I have not. I fear that I, I sort of doubt that I have. And if you figure it out, give me a phone call this week. We can talk about it. And you know, I can't even begin to imagine 
all of the, the situations that are going on with people in our church, all the hurts and all the pains and all the struggles and all the, 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 the struggle with sin and the temptations that all of us are facing, that they all, all the things going on in our life, some of those things said, some of those things nobody else even knows about. And I cannot even begin to grasp that. But I do know this. I know that because Jesus is fully God and that He is fully man, He can empathize, not sympathize. Maybe He can sympathize too. Empathy is a different emotion. He can empathize because He's walked the walk that every one of us has walked. Don't, don't buy into the lie that He was not tempted. He was tempted. And He got mad. And He got sad. And He got happy. All of those things just like us. And because I know that, I know that He can stand in the place for me. That He can stand in the place for me. And He jumps in there on, on our behalf. And I want to invite you with the infinite number of, of situations that are represented with folks in our room just to come face to face with Him personally. And if you're a believer, it's a time to sit there and just praise Him for who He is. For the, the, maybe the, the image that I just painted of who He is, just sit there and praise Him. If not, if you don't know Him, He knows you. Your lack of knowing Him doesn't mean He don't know you. And He knows where you are. And He knows all the junk that you've done. He knows all the junk that you'll do. He knows the junk that you're doing right now. And guess what? He will stand in the place for you too. And I want to invite you right now to trust Him. If you've never done that, you trust Him right now. You trust the picture that we painted of Him and you believe, if it's for the first time, you believe that He stands in the place for you. That He offers you eternal life. A hope that lost people don't have. To be lost is to be hopeless. He offers us hope today. Hebrews 2. It says that no one has to ever fear death again because of His humanity and because of His deity. And I invite you to trust Him today. And look, if, if you did, if that happened today while we're sitting here, I want you to grab that connection card in front of you and I want you to check the box that said I got saved. Check the box underneath it that says I want to take the God plunge. Matter of fact, check every box. I don't even know what all the boxes are, but check them all. We'll sort that out later on. The biggest box to check, those the one that says I got saved. Because if that's true, if it's real, you woke up this morning with two feet in the, in the grave and you're going to go to bed tonight with your whole body up in heaven. What greater truth is there than that? And so I encourage you to let us know that. Just to let us know that. And if that, if that happened, or if you've got anything else going on, prayer, concern, whatever, fill that connection card out let us know. And if you want to pray, we've got a, our prayer team is going to be back in this corner and they would love to pray with you. They'd love to just put their arm around you even if you don't have anything to say. But they're there to pray with you and for you. Um, and so we come to this time in our service where I want to call the host team up, where we are going to collect, take up a tithe and an offering. And, and here's what I know. Trusting uh, the Lord with your stuff typically is the last place where people trust Him. just normally is. We're human beings, fallen human beings, and that usually that's just the way it works. Uh, but here's what I know. He asks us to. He asks us to trust Him with 100% of ourselves. Our checkbook's part of that. And, and I also know this. We as a church want to be good stewards 
and are committed to being good stewards for every nickel that lands in that offering bucket. And our yardstick for our budget is, is it going to make heaven a little more crowded? That, that, that's the yardstick. Everything we do, that's the filter, that's the lens that we look through. Any ministry, any anything, it is about, is it going to make heaven a little more crowded? And so y'all, uh, uh, I want to call our worship team up, um, and I want to pray over this offering, uh, and then we're going to worship, and then y'all going to go home, and I hope you have a great week. So Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you. We ask that you would um, take this offering, that you would that you would double it, that you would triple it, that you would do what you did with the fish and the loaves. That's just what you do. It's just who you are. And Lord, we trust. We don't just ask that you're going to do that. Lord, we trust that you're going to do that. We trust and we're tickled to death that we have the privilege to serve in your name, to be your hands and feet out in a world that desperately needs you. And so, Lord, we know that that takes resources to do. And so we know that you're going you're gonna to bless those resources and you're going to use them to bring more people back into relationship with you. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.